Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, welcome to this special Christmas edition of The Naked Scientist, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science and technology. This week, what medical specialists get the most speeding tickets? The answer might surprise you. How many miles have you got to run to work off Christmas dinner? And the scientists are exploring whether ear size can be used to track down the real Santa. And also on the way, the Naked Gaming podcast team are going to hijack the show and take over the airwaves. Gamers Chris Barrow and Lee Milner are here in the building to reveal some of the top computer games titles that you can look forward to this Christmas and New Year. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave me one present, a partridge in a pear tree. But I'm Amalia Thomas, and I'm a mathematician, and I want a mathematical formula to know how many presents I'll receive all the other days. On the second day, he gave me that one present again, and then two more turtle doves. So on the second day of Christmas, my true love gave me a total of three presents. Then on the third day, I got these three presents again, plus three French hens. So on the third day... My true love gave me six presents. These presents add up quickly. Can you work out how many gifts will be crammed into my stocking by the last day of Christmas? And it's not actually as simple as it sounds, but thankfully Amalia is going to be back in about 20 minutes' time and she'll put you out of your mathematical misery if you can't work it out. And of course, another institution that's very good at minimising misery is the medical profession. And each Christmas, the British medical journal, the BMJ, uses the festive period to publish some of the more unusual pieces of research that they receive. My name is Sophie Cook and I am an editor working at the BMJ and I have been involved in the Christmas issue this year. The Christmas issue has become a sort of BMJ tradition, really, uh, and where each year we take a bit of a break from the norm. Um, we publish more light-hearted and sometimes satirical content. And I think it's important because our readers work very hard all year and we think it's it's nice to provide something a bit different for them, sort of alongside the, the regular offerings. Like this very important paper you've got here on what my specialty says about my likelihood of getting caught for speeding. Yes, exactly. Yes. So um, we, we found this was quite an interesting research question. And I'm sure that doctors are very interested in the behaviour of other doctors, if you're anything like me. Well, I'm glad um, I'm not a psychiatrist. I mean, look at that. They're streets ahead on the speeding are. scales. They've got more tickets than anybody. So they are. Um, it's probably not the conclusion that I would have come to myself, actually. Um, but this is an observational study that um, used data from Florida in the US. These authors wanted to have a look at which doctors were most likely to be caught speeding. But not only that, they wanted to look at whether or not specific doctors would be more likely to be caught speeding in a luxury car. And they looked at physicians, but they also looked at a comparison of non-physicians as well. The outcomes were interesting because they found that actually it was the psychiatrists who were most likely to be caught extreme speeding, doing over 20 miles per hour above the speeding limits. And they also found that actually those who were most likely to be caught speeding in a luxury car were the cardiologists. 
They also looked at whether or not doctors were more likely to sort of get off speeding tickets. And they found that actually compared to the general population, there wasn't. So their conclusion was that doctors aren't sort of treated more favourably compared to the, the general population in terms of leniency. But interesting to see the psychiatrists up there. And I'm sure that will make for some interesting discussions um, within the hospital with your specialty colleagues. Looking at these numbers, there's 15,000 speed tickets issued here Mm -hmm. uh, to 5,000 doctors, give or take. So that means that these people are real speed demons. Yes, yes, it it does mean that, actually. Certainly, uh, it does look like there are doctors that like to drive fast out there and enjoy their cars. Are these appraisals of people picking up tickets on their way to work or from work? Because obviously that matters, doesn't it? And uh, it, it may be that the golf course is particularly alluring if you're on the way home, or it could be that work is very pressing. Motives are quite different in each case. I think that's a really valid point and um, it's probably worth saying that 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 wasn't accounted for. Um, These are just general speeding tickets. So that car in front is probably a psychiatrist is the bottom (laughs) line, isn't it? Another kind of honour, not that a speeding ticket is a badge of honour or anything, the honours system. You've got a very interesting study of the British honours system here and I discover actually I've gone into totally the wrong area because um, if I want to get a gong, being in medicine is not the way to do it by the look of it. Yes, unfortunately, you have made the wrong decision, as many of us have done. Um, We probably would have been better off in a career as a sports person or in the media. So, you know, there is hope for you there, Chris, I suppose. (laughs) Well, Um, well, I suppose, yes, what happens if, because if you dabble with both medicine and media, because I'm a media doc type person, so what does that mean for my prospects then? Well, it's difficult to say, and the authors do actually list that as one of the limitations of the study. They looked at over 10,000 New Year's honours, which were um, issued between 2009 and 2018. And what they found out was, actually uh, if you're a sports person you're probably 22 times more likely to um, to get an honour uh, they did note that there was a, a peak after obviously the Olympics where a lot <laughs> of sports people in that year did receive honours so that was a little bit of an anomaly. If you're in the media you're you're five times more likely to get an honour than, than somebody working in healthcare. One thing that they did say which is interesting is that obviously to receive an honour you have to be nominated and actually it might be that the fact that more people are nominated in other industries just reflects the practice of that industry and and perhaps in healthcare uh, we tend to do that less often i'll get right in my letter now (laughs) (laughs) i'll nominate you sophie what about longevity because that's always a big question, isn't it? How long am I going to live if I dabble with the arts? That's another paper you've got here. I like oh, this one. Oh, yes. Yes, this paper looked at data from the English Longitudinal Study of Ageing and they looked at people who were over 50 years old and they followed them up for 14 years. And they looked at engagement with arts and by that they looked at receptive engagement. So people who were going to art galleries, museums, the theatre, and they looked to see during that time period what effect that had on mortality. And actually the benefits of receptive arts engagement are quite big. So even if you engage sort of once or twice a year, people who engaged on that basis were sort of 14% less likely to die during that time period. And actually, if you engage even more, then the benefits do go up. Also, there's Um, a dose-dependent relationship, very important in causation. Yes. And I, I mean, I think I think that this paper is, is particularly interesting because, you know, these sorts of things now are becoming very topical with social prescribing. And it's, it's interesting to see this sort of growing body of literature that we have around arts and benefits to health. I have to be really quite diligent with my five a day to achieve a 14 to 30 percent improvement in my longevity. By that token, arts is just the most amazing medical intervention. Why don't musicians live forever? That's a good question. Maybe it's another one to look at for the Christmas B&J another year. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed it is. Thank you very much to GP and editor of the Christmas B&J, Sophie Cook.
Now, returning to that last item, we can't really just rely on healthy helpings of art to keep us in good shape. Diet is very important too. And the evidence is that we're all eating far too much. Cue a paper from Loughborough University's Amanda Daly exploring whether it helps to slap onto the packet the amount of exercise that you'd need to take to work off the calories in any given food item. With his eye on the Christmas dinner table, Nadim Gabani has been taking a look. The paper, published earlier this month, suggests that pace, or physical activity, calorie equivalent food labelling, could improve eating habits and reduce related diseases by encouraging us to eat fewer calories. But how would you feel if your food and drink was labelled with the amount of exercise required to work it off? Let's take your average Christmas treat as an example, the humble mince pie, each having around 200 calories, 10 grams of sugar and 5 grams of fat. Still sounds good to you, right? What if I told you that it would take at least 20 minutes of exercise to burn it off? And that's before you've even thought about adding custard, cream or going for a second portion. The research is based on the principle that current methods of labelling are not good enough. They say this is simply because people do not know what calories or fat, sugar and fibre etc. are and what they're used for in the body. But if people were able to understand the labels in simpler terms, it may lead to reduced selection of higher calorie foods and increased selection of lower calorie foods. The paper indicates that people picked and consumed products with less calories if they had these labels over products that had no labels at all. Interestingly, pace labelling made little difference over products with calorie-only labelling. It's therefore no surprise that multiple sources, including the NHS, say the study is inconclusive and needs further work. The whole idea of this type of labelling could be thought of in a similar way to the changes made in cigarette packaging a few years ago, whereby branding was removed and all that remains now are warning messages and pictures. It may not be pleasant, but according to multiple studies it has shown to be effective and has therefore contributed to the UK having less smokers than ever before. But then, in principle, is this something that should be mandatory for all food and drink products in the UK? Or perhaps just for highly calorific items? After all, this approach could have negative effects for people with eating disorders or just be taken the wrong way completely. It is important at this point to note that calorific value is just a general value of the energy a food or drink contains. 30 grams of sugar or 30 grams of fibre do very different things in your body. And now, let's see how some of the naked scientists feel about this. Hi Adam, how's it going? Hey Nadine, good. We're going to talk about Christmas. How much do you love your Christmas dinner? Oh no, I, I very much love Christmas dinner. <laughs> do you love it enough to run over 12 miles? T- 12 miles? <laughs> yes, honestly, yeah, yeah, I do, yeah. That's, that's not, yeah, I'd gladly run 12 miles for Christmas dinner. <laughs> if packaging in the supermarkets for food and drink was to, for example, have a time you need to exercise to work off the energy in that product. Would that deter you or change your mind from buying any products, you think? I don't know if it would actually deter me from buying the products or it would just give me more shame while I eat the same things. Hi, Katie. How's it going? Very good, thank you. Very much looking forward to Christmas. How much do you like your Christmas dinner? It's my favourite meal. (laughs) It's got all the component parts that bring me joy. Would you run over 12 miles for your Christmas dinner? Are you serious? <laughs> 12 miles? I mean, I go on a Christmas walk, but got to be honest, I don't go on a Christmas run. 
Maybe I should. So it sounds like there might be something to this after all, but we will have to wait and see if this tool can really help us change our relationship with what we eat. Now that's food for thought. It certainly is. Nadim Gabani reporting. The work he was discussing was published in the Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health. What do you think? Do you think that that's a good strategy? Put the number of exercise units on the packaging alongside the calories. Would that actually make you more or less motivated? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Now, still to come, the scientists who are using statistics to track down the real Father Christmas. We also reveal how many presents, along with the partridge in a pear tree, you would get after 12 days of relentless give-giving. And grab your joystick and fire up your console, because we're going to be talking gaming. Before that, though, Phil Sansom has been getting to the bottom of Rudolph and his famous red nose. Good old Rudolph. The smallest of Santa's reindeer seemingly first appeared in a picture booklet for an American department store back in the 30s. But could he have been real? And if so, what's the truth behind his most famous facial feature? Parts of his story definitely check out. Red light would absolutely have been the most useful colour for navigating through a cloudy night, because red equals a longer light wavelength. These are scattered less by particles of fog, meaning that red light travels farther than other colours which explains why Boris the blue-nosed reindeer got passed over for the job. Now, how would Rudolph have become so distinctive in the first place? Well, some real-life reindeer actually do have red noses, or rather slightly pinker noses than normal. In a study in 2012, some Dutch and Norwegian scientists took images of their noses and found a really high density of tiny blood vessels inside, similar to the capillaries we have in our noses, but even more of them. And they didn't stop there. Next, they put a reindeer on a treadmill, of course, and took pictures with a thermal imaging camera. They saw its nose heating up as it exercised to be one of the hottest parts of its body, suggesting that those blood vessels in the nose are for regulating body heat. So if Rudolph had indeed taken this to the extreme, his nose would have been really full of tiny capillaries that would have helped it avoid freezing while pulling the sleigh on a cold winter night. On the downside, he might lose some popularity if it does turn out that his red nose is actually just covered in blood. I'm going to dismiss the blood theory, though, because Rudolph's nose wasn't just red, it was glowing. Where on earth could something like that come from? There are a number of types of creatures that do glow, that's called bioluminescence, but they are very rarely red. Glowing fish in the ocean depths tend to glow blue because, in water, blue light travels the best. Whereas on land, glowing creatures tend to be yellow or green because that contrasts best with the dark of night. However, there is one deep-sea creature that does glow red, and it's the excellently named Stoplight Loose-Jawed Dragonfish. Like other similarly creepy fish, it first glows blue, in this case from chemical reactions in small glands under its eyes. But it also has a special protein that reabsorbs the fish's own blue light and glows a subtle red. In an underwater world where very few creatures can even see in red, the stoplight loose-jawed dragonfish can now stalk its prey completely undetected. So, here I present to you my conclusions. Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer is a biological mutant who evolved a chemical gland that glows blue and a protein to turn the blue light into red. This means A, one of Rudolph's parents was a stoplight loose-jawed dragonfish, and B, Rudolph has passed the glow onto his kids. And so out there somewhere in the world, living in secret, there's a whole herd of glowing red reindeer. You wouldn't believe that Phil Sanson actually also makes Naked Genetics, a specialist genetics podcast, having heard all those things about strange and bizarre inheritance patterns, would you? Now, talking of lights seen in the sky, now to a famous Christmas carol with an interesting scientific twist. Nadim Gabani. 
Three Kings is a popular Christmas carol composed by John Henry Hopkins in the 1850s, originally for a nativity play. It tells the story of the wise men, or kings, who visited Jesus sometime after his birth. Throughout this carol, there are references to the wise men, or kings, following a star to guide them to Jesus. Whilst the appearance of the star has different interpretations across religions, it is true that humans have been using stars for navigation for thousands of years. So how would this have been possible 2,000 years ago without a GPS device? Well, during the day you can use the sun, which was in general known to rise in one direction, the east, and set in another, the west, following a line across the sky. The path of travel can actually be as extreme as northeast to southwest, or southeast to northwest, depending on what time of year it is. But what if you needed to travel during the night, when maps, routes or landmarks were not available? Well, weather permitting, stars and constellations were often the answer, offering easy-to-remember patterns and rules. Perhaps the best known is the Pole Star, or North Star, which was known to reliably keep its position day to day. We now know that this is because the star sits very close to the North Pole, and therefore it's close to being along the axis of the Earth's rotation. The pole star can be found using the plough, also known as the Big Dipper, which is a saucepan-shaped constellation. The pole star sits above the pot section of the saucepan, so find this and you know which way north is. But how far north are you already? Using your hands, you could approximate your latitude by measuring how high the pole star sits above the horizon. The higher the pole star in the sky, the further north you are. There are various other constellations, such as Orion, which goes east to west, that can be used for navigation in a similar way to this. But what if you're in space and you don't have the Earth's surface as a reference? Spacecraft today typically use devices called star trackers, which are basically cameras or light sensors. The trackers work by taking a snapshot of whichever stars are in their field of view and cross-referencing these to a database of known stars and their positions. So, the relative position of the spacecraft can then be inferred from the selection of stars the tracker can see. This works well because astronomers have mapped out the stars with great detail and accuracy. So the next time you hear a carol about guiding stars, you might want to consider how the constellations above our head paint more than just a pretty picture. Thanks very much to Nadim Gabani. And now to a major story this week. Householders are being warned to watch out after a notorious serial burglar is supposedly active once again. This man can be easily identified by his bright red clothing and white beard. He tends to strike around this time of year and he always leaves one or more signature calling cards in the form of objects wrapped up in colourful paper. What's really surprising though is that sightings are coming in from all over the world suggesting that he employs an army of decoys to get away with his crimes. Phil Sansom has been speaking to data scientist Raphael Sonnebend who along with his fellow detective Bilal Mateen has been trying to catch the real Father Christmas with statistics. What we really wanted to do was basically to work out how we could find Santa Claus and hold him to account for the terrible presents we kept being given. I'm glad someone's finally holding him to account. Really fed up with his fluffy socks. <laughs> so what was your method? Basically, Bilal was aware of these two models that came out in the 90s, which made very strong claims that basically said, if you have someone's age, you can predict their ear size. And 
Santa Claus, who you know we all really know as Saint Nicholas, of course, born in about I think it's fourth century. So we worked out his age now would be one thousand seven hundred and fifty years old, and his ears are basically the same size as an Asian elephant's. That sounds a little big. I got to be honest. Yeah, it's it's bigger than normal. So what we kind of thought was every year, you know, these shopping centers are full up with like, these fake Santas. And we figured that if we went to enough of them, eventually we might just realize that one of them has very, very long and droopy ears, and that would be our guy. The problem that we found is that it turns out the models didn't actually work. Oh no! Yeah. So how did you discover this? We wanted to go by this process called external validation, and what that basically means is we took these models that had been already developed on different data, and we tested it on new data. And when you say models, are they studies of people's ears that people had done before? Yeah, so one of them had used a very small sample size of just 80 people in an old age home in Texas. And it's really not representative of the world. So what we did was we bought about 50 pizzas and close to 100 cookies. And we put out a call in the Alan Turing Institute and the British Library and said, come along, we want to measure your ears. In return, you can have as much food as you like. And in the end, it took about 200 ear measurements and six hours. <laughs> Did people mind getting their ears measured? I don't think they knew what was about to happen. Many people just walked into the room and I was wearing a lab coat. And I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. They thought I was. And I didn't tell them otherwise. Wow, it's amazing what you can get away with, with 50 pizzas, 100 yes. cookies and a lab coat. It was tiring and it was impressive, <laughs> to be honest. Okay, uh, so how did you compare the data to the models, for example, 100 people in a Texan old age home? So obviously we didn't have the original 100 people, so we couldn't actually test how well the models worked on that data. But what we could do was take all of our 100 people and we asked everyone what their age was, look at the predicted ear size from the model, and unfortunately the errors from these models were just about as bad as just randomly guessing. Oh dear. Yes, so it turns out they didn't really work at all. So the thing about these models that we saw was that I think it was something like they predicted that babies would have the ears that you'd expect like a 20-year-old to have. So that's kind of the problem you get when you build a model out of people who are in their 80s. It doesn't really represent the younger population at all. Oh, you can't extrapolate? Not in any way. I guess this also means that St. Nick probably doesn't have ears as big as an elephant, right? The truth is that we don't really know how the Christmas magic works. They say that he died almost 2,000 years ago. Well, let's work from the assumption that he's still alive. Mm. How are you going to catch him? What's next? The nose, perhaps, or his lips, or his other facial features. But that, that has the same problem. It's a tough one. Well, do you know what my idea is? Go on. I think beards. Oh, okay. Somewhere out there, someone's got a beard down to the floor and then background. Mm. And that takes about a thousand years to grow. See, I think he's a good trimmer. Oh, no. Yeah, see, I think he sees that coming. I think he knows. He's crafty. Yeah, he's a wily one. Well, hopefully they will manage to catch up with the festive fugitive at some point. That was Raphael Sonnebend, and he published the story of his Santa hunt in the Royal Statistical Society's monthly magazine, which is appropriately enough called Significance. Right, have you worked it out yet? How many presents you would get after the 12 days of Christmas, given that every day you get all the gifts from all the previous days, plus a new gift? Well, here's Amalia Thomas with the mathematical answer. I pointed out earlier that, on each day of Christmas, since my true love gives me every gift he's given me already again, plus a new gift for that day, I'm expecting a bumper heap of presents this year. But how many? 
We could add it all up the hard way, but luckily, maths can help make life easier with what's called the mathematical theory of sequences. Sequences are strings of numbers with a rule that determines which number comes next. In the case of the gifts I received on the 12 days of Christmas, on each successive day, I got one, then three, then six, then ten gifts, and so on. This is a sequence called the triangular number sequence, because the number of gifts on each day is the number of items you need to form a triangle. It helps to think of this a bit like a human pyramid, where the person on top stands on the shoulders of two people below, and these two people stand on the shoulders of three people below them. So a one-tiered triangle will have one person. A two-tiered triangle will have three people, the first person being supported by the two below, and a three-tiered triangle needs six people, and so on. This sequence goes one, three, six, ten, just like the number of presents I get each day. So asking how many presents my true love will give me on the twelfth day is like asking how many people you need to build a twelve-tier human pyramid. But let's think about a simple three-tier triangle first. We need six people. Three at the bottom, two in the second level, and one at the top. But let's make life unfair and arrange them so the person on the far left has two people on top of him, the person on his right has just one, and the person on the far right isn't holding up anyone. Still six people, but now they're arranged as a right-angled triangle. And since two right-angled triangles make a rectangle, if we had twice as many people, so twelve, we could build a human rectangle instead of a triangle. Picture four people in the base, four in the middle level. And four more on top of those, because a three-tier rectangle like this, with four people at its base, will need twice as many people as a three-tier triangle. Half of twelve gives us the number of people we really need for a triangle, which is six. The formula to work out how many people or gifts you have is the number of tiers we want, so three, times the number of tiers plus one, four, and all of that divided by two. So for a twelve-tier triangle, which will tell us the total number of presents on the twelfth day of Christmas, it's twelve times the number of tiers plus one, so thirteen, and all of that divided by two, which is one hundred and fifty-six divided by two, which makes seventy-eight presents. And if we do that for all the previous eleven days of Christmas, we can find that Mature Love got me a total of two hundred eighty-eight presents. Don't we all wish we had such true love in our lives for Christmas? So, did you get it right? Well, if you didn't, maybe you need to ask Father Christmas for a calculator this year. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet, and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. You're listening to the Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, with Chris Barrow and Lee Milner, because it's a special edition of the program for Christmas, and we have invited the newest recruits of the Naked Scientists to join us this week with their controllers at the ready. Appropriately enough, it is our Naked Gaming crew. Hello, 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 hello. Nice to see you. Yes, thank you, Dr. Chris, for letting us loose and take over. Very wise decision. Uh, so, Lee and I, are looking forward to the show. Let's just give you an idea of what we have in store for you. Yeah, we'll be bringing you the latest gaming news and reviews. Also, the voice of Ash from the original Pokemon TV show is going to join us. That's Veronica Taylor. Really, he just kind of came into here, so he's kind of back in my throat, and you know, he's got a lot of energy. I'm so jealous. Yeah. I want one. You want that as a ringtone? Don't yeah, you? <laughs> I definitely want it. Also, our regular reporter and Frozen correspondent Alex Rhodes gets to grips with the latest Frozen game on your mobile in conjunction with the release of the film Frozen Two. Enter your age. It's embarrassing. Twenty-seven. Right. 
I feel like it, it should close itself down and be like, this isn't for you, mate. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. It's not for him, really. <laughs> Bless him. And we've just started featuring a simulator of the month because, I mean, who doesn't like pretending to be a farmer or even a bee? Yeah, there is really a game called Bee Simulator. Uh, not only that, Lee recently played PC Building Simulator. Right, OK. I'm carrying... read the instructions. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to read instructions. I want to blow something up or raise something. I'm currently picking up a parcel and walking around an office block. It didn't go that well. It never does, but I enjoy it anyway. <laughs> uh, Dr Chris, you're a medical professional, of course. We've also asked you to play a game, Surgeon yeah, you did. Simulator. <laughs> uh, did you find the time for that? Yeah, I did I did find t- time to, to sneak it in. It's several hours of my life I won't get back. OK, let's just hear a little bit of what happened here. It's chopping its way through the bed. Um, <laughs> oh, no. OK, I'll try and remove some ribs. Uh, I'm now lacerating parts of the rib cage. <laughs> Good use of lacerating, but probably not in the right context. Uh, Thank you, Dr Chris. We'll hear the results of that later on. First, let's go to the news and we'll hand it over to Lee Milner, who can tell us about the latest stories from the past few weeks. Okay, so PlayStation has just announced its DualShock 4 back button attachment. Yeah, really, the the accessory you didn't know you ever needed. According to the company, this new attachment improves your gameplay by delivering more versatility and performance. It's coming out in the next few weeks, but how much does it cost? £30. Yeah, so that's £15 a button. In other PlayStation news, the original PlayStation 1 turned 25 years old recently. God, that makes me feel old. Uh, In a blog post, Jim Ryan, the CEO of Sony Interactive Entertainment, said it's truly humbling to see fans who grew up on PlayStation passing down their love of gaming to children. And incidentally, the PS5 is out next year in Christmas. And finally, Fortnite has crossed over to the dark side by collaborating with the Star Wars universe. Disney has teamed up with Epic Games to bring all kinds of exclusive content to the popular Battle Royale shooter, including an in-game screening of the scene from the latest film, The Rise of Skywalker. Now, it's not clear at this stage if the screaming children who watch the film will be banned from the game or not, but I think they should be. Thank you, Lee. More on films a bit later on. But now, if you're a fan of video games, you might be excited about VR, or virtual reality technology. Now, at the moment, you can buy VR goggles with screens and headphones, and they make you feel like you're really inside the world of your favourite game. Yeah, Phil Sansom from the Naked Scientist team has been trying out the next stage of VR, which introduces a sense of touch. Now, these are gloves that can make you feel like you're actually touching the virtual objects you can see. I think that might stress me out but I like the idea of it. Uh, They've been developed by a company called Haptics and Phil went to meet the product director, Joe Marino, at the Cambridge Consultants Innovation Day and he was showcasing their new technology. These are Haptics gloves. They enable you to reach out and touch and interact with the virtual world like you do with the real world. They provide haptic feedback that makes the virtual objects feel like real objects. So it's VR but you can touch stuff? Precisely, VR that you can touch stuff. How does it work? So we have an array of effectively bubbles 
that we inflate pneumatically with air pressure that displaces the same amount your skin would displace when you go out and touch real-world objects. So you squeeze something harder, we push more into your skin. You touch something lightly, we squeeze very slightly into your skin. Additionally, there is a force feedback component that we can prevent your hands as you're grasping something from passing all the way through a virtual object. That's really sci-fi. I love it. Can you show me on the actual gloves? I'd like to try this on to figure out what's actually going on. Is that okay? Yes, we can do that. So the first thing I'd like you to do is if you give me your right hand, we'd like to take a quick hand measurement to make sure that your virtual hand matches your physical hand in size. Perfect. Thank you. Put on these two liner gloves. Very hygienic. We're going to put the gloves on you now. Slide your hand on. Oh, they're more comfortable than I thought they'd be. We spent a lot of time and effort making them as comfortable as possible. It feels like two layers of normal, like, woolen gloves. But on the back is this huge, chunky bit of black plastic with tubes running out going to these caps that you stuck on the end of my fingers. And there's a bit around the wrist as well. It's not actually that heavy. No, we try to keep it as light as possible in your fingers and in your palm. There's a rays of bubbles that uh, we can control the pressure to. And then if you look on the back of your hand, we have these tendons that slide. What materials are we working with here? It's a lot of plastics and silicones and things of that nature. And how on earth do you inflate and deflate the bubbles so quickly to deal with me reaching out and grabbing something? Good amount of air pressure and the right kind of valves. Okay. All right. I'm ready. Put the headset on me. I'm looking at what looks like a, a barn and a windmill and, and a field but I'm, I'm way bigger than it, and it's all done in cartoony graphics. What do I do? This whole world is interactable. You can reach out and touch and grab and play with whatever you want. Okay. So the first thing that's going to happen is there's going to be some rain that's going to come out of that one of those clouds there in a second. If you yeah. put your palm up under the rain, you'll feel the raindrops as they're oh, coming down and hitting the palm of your hand. That's creepy. Feels like little tiny blips on my palm and fingertips. Yeah, so everything in this world is physically simulated, and we're using those physical simulations to give you the tactile feedback that you're feeling. Yeah. Is that significantly more complicated than just simulating something for a game, for example? It's not more complicated. It takes a bit of extra knowledge to understand what is the right way to set things up, but People who can know how to develop games and game engines are pretty good at making this next step to make the environment haptically enabled. If you press that last button, and then you want to grab that fly swatter probably, and then you can swap the UFOs, or they're going to steal everything from your farm. We'll have to get a pair. It does sound good, doesn't it? Yeah, hopefully they're affordable as well, like it sounded like they were. Yeah, I think so. Phil says um, that he did defeat, by the way, all the virtual UFOs with his virtual fly swatter, (laughs) and it was genuinely a lot of fun. Nice one, Phil. Good aim. Uh, Mark's uh, tweeted us saying, we've come a long way since my interest on the PlayStation 1, playing Doom and Duke Nukem, with a bit of Lara Croft as well. (gasps) Happy days. Lara Croft. Classic times. Wow, there. Now, you might have heard this story recently. The world's rarest Pokemon card sold at auction in New York for around £150,000. Yeah, bargain. Only 39 copies of the ultra-rare Pikachu card were ever released as a prize in a drawing competition in Japan. And only 10 of them are known to be in circulation. That is super rare. Now, this particular card is drawn by the original Pikachu artist, that's Atsuko Nishida, and it sold for more than three times the previous record for the exact same card. You see, this is why I spend so much time on Facebook Marketplace. <laughs> I'm trying to get this deal. One day, I'll get it. <laughs> Someone's going to put it up, I'm sure. So, why are trading cards worth so much money? Well, Chris found out from the professional sports authenticator, Terry Mellier, who decides just how much collectible cards are worth. Astute Collectors nowadays understand the importance of getting their memorabilia and or cards graded. 
So they submit, uh, sometimes in bulk, sometimes in single cards, uh, their items to PSA for grading. And there are different levels to that grading. Uh, the turnaround times, all of that sort of impacts the fee. But if, for instance, they could turn in a card to get both uh, a grade as well as authentication, and that would be about a $20 uh, turnaround. And um, what they do is uh, when the cards are submitted to us, obviously they go through a big screening process. And we have uh, professional graders, people that have been in this business for years that know what to look for when they're trying to identify specific identifiers on the card. For instance, measurement's important. Trading cards are generally two and a half inches wide by three and a half inches tall. Uh, the card stock that is used is also something we analyze, the thickness of the paper stock. Um, in the case of upper deck trading cards, for instance, they have a uh, hologram that's situated on the back of all of their cards. These are all things they need to look for. And then, of course, they start looking at the card for condition. Mm. You know, is it something that has dinged quarters, uh, corners? Does it have creases? Um, is there discoloration because the card was left out in sunlight for too long? All of those things impact the final grade that's awarded to the card. What's the top grade? Is it A1 or something like that? Yeah, we actually use numbers. It's a 1 through 10 grading system. Uh, 1 would be poor. And that obviously is your least desirable card in its condition. And then Jim Mint 10 is the top uh, grade card. Anything from Mint 9 to Jim Mint 10 uh, commands pretty good bucks on the uh, secondary market. And that's, again, if somebody wants to take the time to sell those cards, uh, whether it's through an auction house or whether it's online through eBay, or even if it's just going down to the local hobby shop and seeing if they can make a deal with the dealer behind the counter. And we heard about this um, Pikachu card that sold at auction for £150,000 very recently. Is that one of the most valuable cards of recent times? Because it seems like it beat all estimates for similar cards that have previously been sold, or is that kind of small fry compared to some of the others? No, it's certainly not small fry. In fact, the highest price that was ever paid for a Pokemon card uh, at auction all by itself. So that's an exception. But at the same time, it shows that the industry itself is really picking up. But one of the things that impacts the, um, the value of that card on the secondary market value is its scarcity. And that particular Pikachu Illustrator card, uh, that was a promo card that was given out to winners of a comic contest that was held uh, in Japan back in 1997 or 98. And I believe there were 39 of those cards awarded. And today, they're guesstimating that there's only about 10 of those that have surfaced and are still around. So that obviously makes it, you know, valuable in itself, but also just a collectible that people want. And in this industry, uh, scarcity does impact the secondary market value. So that way, it'll command top dollar. Thanks to Terry Mellier from PSACard.com for giving us an insight into how cards are valued. You see, Chris, we're going to be rich in no time. I can't wait for all that money to come in. <laughs> Let's go from Pokemon cards now to the voice of Pokemon in the UK. Yeah, we grew up listening to the voice of Ash Ketchum in the original Pokemon series, who actually turns out to be Veronica Taylor. She's amazing. I caught up with her, and first of all, I had to ask this question. How do you get the job of being Ash? Well, I was working on Slayers, which is another anime, and the people who cast me in that were doing the casting for Pokemon. So it was just, I guess, being in the right place at the right time. Mm. People ask me all the time how many people audition, and I have absolutely no idea. I only know that I was called back many, many times and then 
cast and then not cast. And so I feel like I stumbled into it in a way and was just really lucky that we had eight seasons Every year, we didn't know if we would be going on to another really? season. So we, it would end, and we would wait, and then hear if we were back. So oh. yeah, it it definitely wasn't the glamorous life. But <laughs> I will say, what a great adventure it was to be working on that show, to be able to step into those sneakers, if yes. you will, when I got to work. And my daughter was born at the end of the first season of Pokemon. So I was a 10-year-old boy who was also pregnant for the first season and then a new mom for the rest of it. And so it was really an amazing adventure. And I was on it along with you. Yeah. You know, um, I watched it in the mornings. I watched it when it was on Saturdays. I went to work and worked on it. And, you know, it was just truly extraordinary. And it wasn't just Ash that you played. I played Ash's mom and also May, um, a few Pokemon and some other characters here and there. Um, a lot of times it was, you know, when you're in the booth, they would just say, oh, could you do this? Could you do this one? For May, <laughs> I definitely auditioned. For Ash's mom, I auditioned, like, main characters like that. But mm. other ones like Gary's cheerleaders or, you know, <laughs> things like that, we would all just, you'd get just get thrown into that. Yeah. I'm just wondering what Pokemon you did as well, but I, there's so many. I guess I don't know if you remember any of the ones, because they, they all uh, just say their own names don't they so it's like yeah that's right which is really uh, quite a challenge (laughs) intonation and the inflection that's right i mean seriously you could watch pikachu and just watch pikachu for the whole episode and be totally satisfied you know (laughs) she does such an amazing job i played diglett and goldine and centret my daughter and i both played centret in the very beginning, they didn't want me to play anything other than Ash. And then they were like, okay, you can play Ash's mom. Mm. And then after a while, they let me play other things, whereas everyone else got to play um, a couple of characters. Oh, I see. You know, Brock was James and Misty was Jesse and, you know, different things like that. So you're the voice of Diglett Dig, which I now remember. That's right. That's <laughs> it, right. it wasn't just Diglett, it was Diglett Dig. I remember that Diglett now. Diglett Dig, oh. yeah. Goodness me. And, oh, good time. Uh, yeah, happy. You're like, this, I want this on my tombstone. This is my, my crowning achievement. Hey, but. Um, oh, that's right. <laughs> I played Diglett as a worm, and yeah. I just found out it was a mole oh, right. recently, so I feel like I need to go back and redo the whole thing. Yes, they're going to be the director's cut, you know, like the remaster. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hey, I'd, I'd watch it. I'd, you know, any excuse to watch it again. And it is one of those series that when you do watch it again, and I started watching it again recently because, um, well, I knew I was talking to you and I wanted to sort of remind myself of the series. It's quite emotional storylines. Like in that first series yeah. that you were mentioning, I'd forgotten this, but Ash and Pikachu split up for a while. And I think that was at the, That's right. at the time when you were on the way to actually having the baby. You know, you were quite pregnant at that time. Mm-hmm, so, so mm-hmm. you know, obviously emotional scenes, probably emotional moment for you in life as well. It, yeah. There's a lot, lot going on there. Well, it's surprising in a cartoon for children that there was so much going on. There's so much about loss. There's so much about um, loss in terms of having to lose a favorite Pikachu. Later Mm. on, your friends come Mm. and go. Um, You have to... Gosh, you lose a battle, how, mm. to, how to get back, how to have good sportsmanship, all of those things that you really get to dig into. And when you're dubbing, you don't have a lot of time to think about it. You don't see the script ahead of time. So you're really playing the moment. So it's a great acting exercise in terms of that. And so I feel like all of my training comes together <laughs> to be able to be in the moment. Yeah. And yeah, I think um, being a mother and having to take care of 
your unseen baby and then your now crying baby, yeah, yeah. Um, it does help you to understand about being a trainer, what it takes to put yourself aside and care for others and help others along towards their goals while you are trying to achieve yours. You know, there's a lot of big picture stuff in mm. Pokemon. Mm. And just finally, on the voice itself, where did that actually come from? Really, he just kind of came into here. So he's kind of back in my throat and, <laughs> you know, he's got a lot of energy. Um, and with that, it gave me a lot of room for his emotional journey. Yes. So he could be ah, way up high and then, you know, really dear and come down. <laughs> so he had a, a lot of space in there. So in terms of that, it was a, it was a great voice to work with. Yeah. And it's a great party trick because it sounds a lot different from my voice. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> you can do this all day if you like. I'm happy to listen to you doing the voice of Ash. Oh, just... <laughs> hey, Chris, thanks a lot. You're pretty cool. <laughs> hey, Chris, I choose you. <laughs> I bet you're jealous that she said my name I'm like so that. jealous. I want that. I know. Gutted. Uh, it's great to talk to Veronica Taylor, who was recently in the UK at a convention. She is amazing, and my life is now complete. It is The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Chris Barrow and Lee Milner this week, because we have invited the Naked Gaming podcast crew to hijack the programme and bring you news of all the recent releases in time for Christmas. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, it's chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientist or find us on Facebook. Thanks, Chris. Time now to look at new releases. And there's a couple for you. Let's start with Frozen Freefall, released in conjunction with the film Frozen 2. Now, we saw the film. Love it. Did you like it? I loved it so much. Did you see it, Dr Chris? Have you seen it yet? No, but my kids want to. Okay. You yes. must. It. It's really good. You absolutely must. Will I get an earworm like I did in the first yeah. one? Yeah. Uh... Anyway, enough of that. <laughs> uh, so, is the latest Frozen free-to-play mobile release any good? Well, you get a grid, you match the gems, and they pop. That's how you get points. Let's hand it over to a man who's as cold as ice, our resident snowman enthusiast and O-laughing-stock... Alex Rhodes. Hello there, Chris. Alex here. Now, uh, when you told me that I'm going to be playing a game that ties in with a uh, beloved movie franchise that's very current right now and the, all the rage and everyone's talking about it, I naturally thought, oh, I'm going to be playing the new Star Wars game. I'm not. I'm playing Frozen Freefall. Uh, I think it came out recently with Frozen 2. It's a mobile game as well, so let's just give it a whirl, shall we? I've got it installed on my uh, my phone here. I'm actually coming to you, uh, not from my normal... Usually, you know, I'm in my bedroom. This time I'm actually at my girlfriend's parents' house for the sort of Christmas period. They're all downstairs, you know, um, doing something. I just sort of snuck upstairs to play computer games by myself. So let's give it a go. Boot it up. Here we are. From what I can tell... Oh, the Disney logo's loading up. It looks a bit like a kind of bejeweled knockoff. Ooh, here we go. Enter your age. It's embarrassing. 27, right. I feel like it it should close itself down and be like, this isn't for you, mate. You weirdo. Okay. I'm looking at a big sort of map. There seems to be loads of levels. Each sort of little uh, nodule on the map represents a level, I think. What you can't miss is in the top left, uh, in big letters, is Sale. Like many a mobile game, I imagine this one makes all its money. It was free to install, so I imagine it makes all its money from microtransactions. So my target is 7,500 points. I've got 20 moves. Ooh, there we go. That was a pretty good one. If you like Bejeweled, you're probably going to like this, because it hits that kind of, you know, 
scratches that itch of lots of bright colours and sort of sparkly things. And uh, one of the characters, I think, from Frozen 2 is kind of just staring at me with a dead-eyed expression at the moment at the top of my screen. Oh, I got free for. What's that mean? Magical. Oh, I seem to have done it. it it's just, I'm not impressing anything. It's just the target was 7,500. I got 40,000. Oh, there's Olaf, the little snowman guy, again, popping in with a sort of dead expression. From what I can tell, nobody talks in this game. You think the whole advantage of being the officially licensed game is that you have the voice actors? This doesn't even sound like the, the frozen music. It's just like kind of knockoff music. Okay, what's this? All right, okay, this is sort of like a special gem. You combine it with any ice crystals to break all the... Okay, so yeah, this is something from Bejeweled. It's like one of the special tiles. It's just doing it again. It's just like playing the game. I'm not even pressing anything, and I'm getting thousands of points here. Target was 10,000 for this level. I've got 41,000, and I barely did anything. Okay, and then Olaf comes in once again to be like, oh, well done. Thank you. Like, dinner's ready, it is Christmas, my parents, my whole family. Well, I would, but this is very important, sort of. I'm yeah. playing Frozen, the game. Frozen, yeah. the game, a Look, very, very important computer game. I'm sorry if the nut roast is getting cold. <coughs> I told you I didn't want the nut roast and I wasn't going to eat it, you. so look. I'll tell you when I'm done, just just go well, down fine. and Fine, you finish. go tell my dad why, why you're not downstairs for dinner. I will in a minute, <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm finishing with Frozen, so please, very please leave. Thank you. Thank you. Right, well, probably lost some uh, boyfriend points there, Chris. And I'm going to be honest, it wasn't worth it. Usually it is for computer games. With this one, not worth it. Frozen 2 has destroyed another family and another relationship <laughs> this Christmas. We've lost it. I can't speak. I mean, we knew that was coming, but it's still so funny. <laughs> Chris lost it. He can't speak. Uh, Alex oh. Rhodes there. I think we need to uh, let him go from his contract. No, now we can stop. keep him, can't please we? Stop. It's too funny. Thanks, oh, Alex dear. Rhodes, for being frozen. Free fall, the free-to-play mobile game. It's out now for mobile devices. Oh, let me get my breath. Right, next now. up, okay. some mm. downloadable content has just been released for Jurassic World Evolution, a game where you manage a theme park filled with dinosaurs. It's like a dream come true. Uh, and it's the downloadable content we've all been waiting for, you see, because me, most of all, Return to Jurassic Park. ACU building online. Rapid response unit deployed. Observe non-lethal protocols. Roger, control deploying non-lethal countermeasures. Control, we have eyes on the asset. So it's worth saying you're a massive dino fan. How long did you play this game for? Just okay. reveal the truth. Honestly, in nine what? hours in one night. <laughs> yeah. It's addictive to say the least. It's like Sims meets roller coaster tycoon. Yeah. But you've got to build a Jurassic Park, but not kill anybody. Keep the dinosaurs alive. Because they keep breaking free, don't they, the dinos? Yeah, the T-Rexes do, the tricky little things. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, just keep everyone alive and make lots of money, really. So it's just like the actual film. And can we get a rating out of 10 for Jurassic World Evolution, the downloadable content? It has to be... Tenosaurus for me! Wow, okay. Thanks very much indeed for that. And now board games. Yes, they're always popular at family get-togethers, particularly at this time of year. You love a board game. I love a board game. Too much. I, I mean, I could play, play board games all night. But you do. <laughs> Cluedo, Monopoly, like, we've Kaplunk. just bought... We've, Kaplunk. <laughs> we've just bought Mousetrap. It's in our car right now, genuinely. Literally, it's like retro revival for board games. That's true. And where did you buy it from? 
a random person's house for £10, didn't you? On the Facebook Marketplace, well where done, you yeah. find all the Pokemon cards. <laughs> anyway, I'm not going to advertise it. OK. Uh, so why are board games still so popular, and how do you come up with something new to rival these classic board games? Cesar Uljassar is from Alley Cat Games, based in Cambridge. They design unusual board games, including Dice Hospital. So when did it all begin? I was a postdoc at uh, the Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge, and in the last six months of that postdoc, I started developing uh, a science-themed game with my wife. It was called Lab Wars, so we started working on it, we playtested it, we did all the art and stuff, we put it on Kickstarter, um, and that did really, really well because it got featured on a whole plethora of science-based news channels, and the biggest one was Nature News, um, as well as like Wall Street Journal, um, Science... And because of that, um, a lot of scientists who play games back that campaign and we've sort of never looked back. Um, and since then, we've made about, I don't know, 10, 11 Kickstarters. So how do you try and make a popular game that people will enjoy? Our philosophy is we try to make thematic games. Playing them, they're not just abstract things where you're moving pieces around. You actually feel engrossed in the theme. So, for instance, with Dice Hospital, like you said, it's actually our most popular title. Um, you literally feel like you're managing a hospital by manipulating the dice because the dice are the patient's health levels. So so you're literally moving pieces, uh, which is like a doctor, you move them into a, a room and that manipulates the dice. So actually the most recent one uh, that we've sort of the Kickstarter finished is Dice Hospital Community Care. So it's the expansions to Dice Hospital. Uh, that did really, really well. I think that had like almost 3,000 backers or something. Um, and right now we have another Kickstarter called Tungaru, which is like a Polynesian seafaring game uh, designed by some famous German designers. Um, and that's on Kickstarter right now. So, yeah, we're always busy doing things. <laughs> Thanks to Cesar Uljassar from Alley Cat Games. Chris, you probably would like Dice Hospital because the dice are the patients, but <laughs> low numbers on the dice means they have low health. So you've got to, wow. got to try and get so it So what sorted. do you actually have to do? You roll other dice and then that impacts the patient dice. <laughs> So if you roll high on certain dice, then you do well. But if you, yeah, so it's a bit of, it's all in the wrist. Is, is it? <laughs> You're an expert at that, are you, Chris? Yes. <laughs> and the player with the highest reputation wins the game, so it's never going to be me. Now, just to finish today, Dr Chris Smith, of course, the driving force behind the Naked Scientist. Well, Lee and I decided to set him a challenge. Yeah, you had to get hold of a, a, a hold of a copy of Surgeon Simulator to start with and give it a go. This is what happened when Chris found out the game that he was playing. Okay, let's see what Chris has sent over for me to take a look at. Play. Oh, Surgeon Simulator. Yep, give it to the doctor, see how he gets on. It's been about 20 years since I last operated on somebody, so this is going to be interesting. Uh, My reception desk, by the look of it, and I've got a computer I can do things with. It's telling me to move my hand around, I have to tilt my mouse left and right right button twists at the wrist left button makes my hang up and down bottle of diazepam on the desk in front of me that could come in handy if I get too many tremors and start okay let's start operating then oh we're in theatre Oh, there is a patient on the table in front of me, and it is Donald Trump. I'm operating on Donald Trump. Do a heart transplant on Donald Trump. Okay, so next to the bed with Donald Trump on it is a transplanted organ chest. So let's see what they've got in there for us. I'll open that latch. In this box, there are two hearts. I can have a stone one or a gold one I can transplant into Donald. Okay, 
Oh, I've just given myself a needle stick injury with that. Uh, oh, <laughs> there was a syringe and a needle next to the bed and I accidentally touched it and I've injected myself with whatever was in it. And my hand has shrunk to minuscule proportions, which is quite interesting. Right, there is something that looks like a martial arts weapon. It says rotary saw or there's a laser cutter. All right, let's try the martial arts thing. That looks fun. Let's pick that up. And oh, oh, oh my goodness, this thing... I've got hold of and, and it's whirling around like a strimmer and it's got about five blades that are going around incredibly fast um ah uh, uh okay uh, it's chopping its way through the bed um <laughs> oh, no. okay I'll try and remove some ribs uh, I'm now lacerating parts of the rib cage ah ah it's doing a huge amount of damage it, it, it um uh, oh my goodness, I've dropped it and it's gone inside the patient. Let me try the laser cutter. Right? The other one's gone now. Obviously not sterile. <laughs> Chris, this is so hard. How did you give me this? It's impossible. I can't control this. Ah, okay, I've got a laser cutter now. It's it's a bit like a weapon you'd get, I think, in, in Star Trek. It looks like a lightsaber, actually. Well, it, it, okay, it's cutting ribs. So that, I've cut two ribs. Let's cut that one. Uh... But the patient is losing huge amounts of blood now. Oh my. Ah, uh, ah. Uh, the medical bill. It's reporting that, oh dear, the patient's died. Oh, yeah, he. Unfortunately, he's run out of blood. It says that the cost of using the laser was $528,000. And the other saw that I dropped on the floor cost $106,000. That sounds like a bargain. Room and board, though. $199. Total amount due for a dead patient, $634,888. Would you like to try again? No button to call your lawyer, interestingly. <laughs> it sounds like you had a lot of fun. <laughs> Did you have fun playing Surgeon Simulator? It, it was really difficult, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I mean, 10 out of 10 for humour. Yeah. It was the really dark daft kind of humour that I absolutely <laughs> love. I mean, you know, bottles of diazepam on the doctor's desk. And like, it, it was like dark humour, very funny. Donald Trump on the operating table, and if you want to, you could just go and give him a good slap round the face. You could give him a face transplant. Well, you couldn't do that, but his, his head would sort of wobble backwards and forwards <laughs> as, you, as you slapped him about a bit. You couldn't wow. pull the rig off. Um, but, but no, every sort of medical bone in my body was rebelling against this, because you end up in this operating theatre, you can only see one hand that you can operate with. It's the wrong hand, in my case. Oh, it was left, my left, it's left hand. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you've got no gloves on, so you're kind of delving into this person with no gloves, no no kind of proper protection on you or, or the patient. And, and then you pick up these tools and instruments, and there's everything from like an axe, if you want an axe, <laughs> into the patient to this, as I say, lightsaber-like thing, which well. when you pick it up, it's not at all coordinated. You just end up kind of basically scything all over the operating theatre and you slash his neck by accident with this thing. Because when you try and move the arm to then move it to the ribcage to start cutting ribs, you accidentally miss and get everything else wow um, it's it's i don't know carnage yeah so 10 out of 10 for humor but honestly after about an hour of trying i just said my life's too short for I this i tell you what you need to have a go on goat simulator yeah, you'd really? be great at that why yes carnage didn't, i thought you said your tongue got stuck on the back end of someone's goat yeah well it didn't yeah, sound that, like ideal yeah 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 <laughs> that was the game you were playing wasn't it <laughs> it didn't sound ideal to me it's a bit yeah it's a bit crazy but i mean if I was the patient, I mean, I've had, I've had knee surgery recently. If you were the surgeon, yeah, don't come in my I'd be pretty patient. nervous. <laughs> Expensive as well. Uh, well, thanks to Dr. Chris Smith uh, for letting us play today as well. Uh, we loved it so much. Yeah, we're off to go play some games. <clears throat> Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park. <coughs> Sorry, what? Are you okay? Yeah. Do you need to see a doctor? <laughs> no, I definitely don't. <laughs> 
Well, have a lovely Christmas, both of you. Don't play too many games. <laughs> but uh, hopefully you at home enjoyed the programme as much as I did. And if you want to tune in for the latest Naked Gaming episode, you just look up Naked Gaming Podcast via whatever route you use to get your podcast and you'll find Chris and Lee's programme there. It's always a very funny and, and entertaining listen. Well, that's it for the Naked Scientists for this week for this year and for this decade we're actually seeing you back in 2020 for the first proper edition of the naked scientist that'll be a science phone in so this is your chance to get your science questions in now well ahead of that first january program you can write to chris at the naked all that remains to be said is thanks for listening this year thanks for your support for the naked scientists have a lovely christmas enjoy new year and see you in 2020 Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.